Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and welcome to The Daily Beast, the new abnormal. I'm a left-wing pundit and an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. Our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and figure out how to get ourselves out of it. And I'm producer Jesse Kennan. I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. Today, we have an excellent show. Crooked Media's Brian Boitler will join us to talk about what the Democrats should do to get past the mansion cinema gridlock. Then we'll talk to linguist George Lakoff, author of the classic political theory book, Don't Think of an Elephant. And we'll talk to him about how Democrats can message better. But first, we had to bring on Pod Favorite, the author of Too Much and Never Enough, as well as her latest, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal, Mary Trump. Welcome back to the new abnormal, Mary Trump. Thank you, Molly Jongfest. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here. Me too. Okay, so I want to apologize for getting you sued. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's going to take a little bit more than a, an apology, <laughs> I think. Edible arrangements are coming your way. A fruit oh. Can I sell it for $100 million? It's not $100 million worth of fruit. Oh. but Well, that's I probably mean, just as well. I, where would I put it? <laughs> Can you imagine? So I was impressed to see the new abnormal in a Trump lawsuit. <laughs> My husband was a little worried, but I told him that, we, you know, it's fine and that he, you know, it's only $100 million. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about, were you surprised this was coming? I mean, does this seem like new or? I had no idea. <laughs> so <laughs> Lachlan Cartwright, whom you know, called me uh, Wednesday night. It was fairly late. <laughs> but I, I like eight or nine or something. But, you know, I've known I've known Lachlan since he outed the publication of my first book. <laughs> I remember it well. Yes, uh, last spring. And he's a really good guy. I just did a long interview with him a couple of months ago. And he tells me that Donald's suing me. And I wasn't thinking I'm on the record. <laughs> So and I was a little taken aback. So that's where the he's I think he's a fucking loser quote came from because I wasn't being careful. It's a good quote, though. It is a good quote. It's just not as grammatical as it would have been otherwise. It, <laughs> but it, it's a good quote. And I think yeah. I think it speaks to what America thinks about Donald Trump. So let's just talk for a minute about the lawsuit, because I think it's important that we talk about one of the most hilarious parts of the lawsuit, which is he accuses you of stealing documents that you were given in discovery. Discuss. Yes. First of all, uh, the documents were tax returns, other kinds of tax documents, banking records, et cetera, that were given to me in discovery during a 2000 lawsuit that I filed against my grandfather's estate. 
all of those documents belonged either to my grandfather, my grandmother, or my grandfather's business. So in other words, none of them belonged to Donald in the first place. Right. Secondly, um, my the, the lawyer who handled that case, uh, when I went to get the documents in 2017, he, he hadn't been my attorney for a long time, but he still had had them in a storage somewhere. And he told me that I couldn't take them out of the office until I got my brother's permission, which wasn't true <laughs> because they were my documents. If you, you know, make a copy if you want. Right. But anyway, but just to be safe, I took some of them anyway because they were mine. <laughs> Good and who was going to check? And then I discovered that there were two copies of everything anyway. Right. At which point he's like, oh, OK, knock yourself out. So, yes, that is quite amusing that a lawyer would think that that was a reasonable thing to say in the first place. And those documents have nothing to do with Donald, although they did prove an awful lot of interesting things about him, didn't they? Yeah. And it also, I think, one of the most important things that strikes me is that you have this kind of proof that it's true. Yeah, I have proof that it is true. And the, the other thing that which, by the way, he's not disputing. Right. Which is one of my favorite things about this. <laughs> uh, there's so there's so much in this lawsuit that's fun. That's just that's just one of them. The other one is that somehow these New York Times reporters coerced me. Like there's a difference between convincing somebody over time, coercing them. But I apparently right. I'm such a weak <laughs> child that uh, they were able to strong arm me into smuggling my own documents and <laughs> handing them over. <laughs> You know, my my other probably my most favorite thing about this is that he quotes the Times article extensively, which outlines all of the awful things Donald has done. <laughs> and then he quotes extensively from my book. Like, thank you. I mean, I'm like, OK, should I be angry? Should I send him flowers for selling more books for me? I think it's the latter. <laughs> Donald and Meghan McCain are like my best sales. <laughs> yeah, Meghan McCain, I mean, she she's really, uh, it's not clear to me. I mean, it's just a fascinating adventure. And the irony of this is that you get to do discovery against him again. Yeah, you know, it's never going to come to that. Right. Mm. Clearly, the lawsuit, as my attorney, Ted Butro said, who's handling the First Amendment stuff, said it's dead in the water. Right. It's doomed to fail because it's so shoddy and it, it really doesn't. How did I damage him? Even, right. even if, you know, you can you can argue that there's a contractual breach, which there isn't. But even if you could, what damage did I do to him? Right. What do I give him a buck? <laughs> 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 Uh, so it isn't going anywhere. I, I think Robbie Kaplan put it best when she wrote on Twitter, the way to sum up this lawsuit is to say, Donald is essentially with this lawsuit saying, I may have defrauded Mary Trump out of tens of millions of dollars that she should have inherited from her father. <laughs> but she never should have figured that out because of the confidentiality agreement I fraudulently induced her to sign. Yes. <laughs> That's it. It does strike me that everything is a is a lawsuit to him. So he forgets how that could be damaging. Clearly this is a desperate person and it may be to distract it may be simply to help me sell books. Who knows? <laughs> it's a non-starter and I think potentially I don't know that he's this smart and I 
don't think he has lawyers left at this point who uh, do anything other than operate out of strip malls. But he's probably <laughs> quite worried about my lawsuit against him because this is how the Trump family communicates. Right. We to each other. My lawsuit, which I brought last year, alleging uh, widespread fraud that's against him and, and my other uncle and my Aunt Marianne, uh, has a really good basis for succeeding. And there will be discovery because, one, it's an incredibly well-crafted uh, suit. Two, there's a lot of merit. And three, I'm not backing down. You know, I'm not yeah. settling ahead of time. Mm-mm. Yeah, good for you, man. I just interviewed you yesterday at the Commonwealth Club, though neither of us were in California. We were both in our houses. And we talked about the reckoning. So for the people who listen to this podcast and don't listen to the hour and a half YouTube, I just want to talk about the book. What I think is amazing. So the first chapter of the book is this really personal experience of you going to an inpatient rehab to deal with trauma. As some people can relate to, uh, I didn't handle the results of the 2016 <laughs> election very well. Yes. And in fact, I had this thought, which was that you may have been the person most upset by the 2016 election. I was. I took it incredibly personally, which is ridiculous. Right. But I did. I felt really betrayed. You know, it also didn't help that I had people I considered good friends at the time who voted for him knowing what they knew. And I pretty quickly unraveled. I mean, 2016 hadn't been a great year either, simply because he was around so much. And, you know, and they won the primary and like this awful person has a greater than 0% chance of getting into the Oval Office. How is this possible? And I tried to fit, like, why was he so triggering? Why was this so triggering to me? He had nothing to do with why I have PTSD at all. And I realized that it was pretty simple. It's like, once again, it felt like the absolute worst person gets all of the success while the rest of us are just left to flounder. And the injustice of that put me in a tailspin. And I, I realized at one point, either I do this voluntarily or I'll get to the point where I don't have a choice. Right, <laughs> so exactly. I thought it was better to do it voluntarily. I think that it was smart. And I, I as someone who is sober 20, almost 24 years, you know, I went to rehab when I was 19 at Hazelden. So I uh, relate to the inpatient experience. I mean, it is, you know, especially now when you talk about this, it's a huge luxury to be able to go to an inpatient. I mean, it's thousands of dollars. It's unreachable for, I'd say, 99%, maybe, maybe not 99, but 95% of the people in this country, unless they're willing to go into enormous amounts of debt. That's another problem. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate and I feel... Well, I don't feel lucky that I have PTSD, but I certainly do feel lucky that I, I have access to that kind of treatment. But it shouldn't be this way, especially considering the fact that we are now facing the greatest mental health crisis in our history. And to one degree or another, even some of, though some of us don't know it, we are all affected by this. And if it we're not, then people we love are. Our government needs to put enormous resources into educating people about what they might be suffering from. And helping them access treatment at schools, at the local level, the community level, et cetera. Um, I actually think that the Biden administration needs to um, create a new cabinet position. For mental health. Yeah. One of the things I came away from interviewing you last night was just that it, this is still a case of America versus fascism. And you are a person who knows your uncle pretty well. 
and knows what's going to happen, you know, and I mean, I think that it's pretty good money that he's going to run again. What can Democrats do to save democracy? It's not America versus fascism. It's American democracy versus American fascism, because there have been fascist strains in this country since the beginning. And I would argue that the Jim Crow South was a closed fascist state for uh, almost 100 years. Yeah. And you write about this in the book. You know, while America is promoting itself as this great purveyor of democracy during World War II. So the impulses have always been there. The structures have always been there. So the Democrats and I, I find it really appalling that we have to have this conversation. The fact that there are Democrats sitting senators, some of whom have been in the Senate for decades, don't understand these things is kind of mind-blowing. The fact that we have to convince them that it's actually their job to save American democracy. And yet, instead of doing that, they think that the right thing to do is to make common cause with people who are fascists, who are anti-democratic, counter-majoritarian people who would destroy democracy in a second if we allow them to. They need to get serious. They need to take the threat seriously. They need to remember who they work for and who put them in office and that there are so many more of us than there are of them. They need to get rid of the filibuster. Biden needs to put four more seats on the Supreme Court and double the size of the federal judiciary. And they need to get down to the hard work of ending voter suppression and helping people economically and rebuilding our infrastructure. And if they do those things, Republicans will never win again. It's really that simple. If they don't do it, Democrats will never be allowed to win again. Yeah, it strikes me that we are really finding ourselves uh, in a situation where Republicans are reacting to this fact that demographically they're in trouble. And their reaction is to just make it impossible for democracy to keep going. That's the only card they have left to play. We were talking about cell phones with Donald and Meghan McCain. Imagine how much of a cell phone it would be for the Democrats to let that happen. Right. And it feels to me like it's happening. Like, it doesn't strike me that Biden is taking decisive action. It seems like Democrats are playing from the usual playbook and Republicans are playing from the 1934 Germany playbook. The Democrats are playing by a playbook or following a playbook that doesn't exist anymore because the uh, Republicans blew it up. So that's kind of absurd. Right. Don't you think? (laughs) I mean, it just it seems crazy to me. And I don't know how to get Democrats. You know, Manchin is mad about, you know, a climate bill for obvious reasons, because he takes money from oil and gas and because he represents a state where coal is one of the, you know, exciting things that they do there. But ultimately, what Manchin doesn't realize is like, you know, they may not come for him now, but eventually this Republican Party is going to make it so that there are no, you know, that it's over. No, of course. And and the, the thing that I find really infuriating is what else is it going to take? They're threatening to not to uh, raise the debt ceiling again. Right. How many times does this need? They did it 500 times while they were, you know, increasing tax cuts for the wealthiest among us. And now they're threatening to blow up the whole country economically because they know that Biden would be blamed for it. I always think about the Senate parliamentarian. When there was a Republican Senate parliamentarian, that person put Arctic drilling in reconciliation. Arctic drilling, which is fucking preposterous. And now we have a Democratic 
parliamentarian who's saying, like, you can't put dreamers in there. You can't put this in there. You can't put that in there. Like, you guys, Democrats are moral for no reason. Right. And, and not only that, but it's a purely advisory role. They don't have to listen to her. And moral, though, I, like, I think because there's nothing moral about keeping dreamers out of reconciliation. I think it's a, they are so bound by their dedication to these, again, no longer existing rules. And they don't want to look bad or they, they don't want to look mean. I don't know. OK, fine. Then in order to save things like the filibuster, you're willing to risk our becoming a fascist country. Go for yeah, it. And they totally are. And I mean, I think it's striking to me that Mitch McConnell successfully got I mean, it wasn't Mitch McConnell, it was Harry Reid, but they got rid of the filibuster for judicial appointments. Mitch McConnell stole three Supreme Court seats and Democrats are like, oh, but we must keep it. No, fuck it. Just get rid of it. Like, get going. Come on, people. These ten, there are no ten. There are not ten sane Republicans. There are not oh. even six sane Republicans. I don't even think there's one. Right. And I think the the reality is even the quote unquote sane Republicans, the ones that voted, voted against Trump's armed insurrection, even the Mitt Romney types, even those guys are completely beholden to the Republican Party and won't do anything to pass a Democratic legislation no matter what. Right. And I mean, think about it. Just because they're willing to stand up for the rule of law once in a while. Right. Like Liz Cheney and Adam Kingsinger, they they still voted with Donald 99 percent of the time. And right. they are even Liz Cheney is as much responsible as any of the rest of, a, of them for how we got here. Oh, so, yeah. So, yeah, it's right. lovely that she's decided to do her job now. Yeah. Great. And I'm not going to take that away from her. It's lovely. But too little, too late. Exactly. It's just completely unfair. So uh, what happens next for you, Mary Trump, in this fabulous lawsuit? <laughs> Sorry, I'm obviously very worried. I'm I'm so worried. It's making me laugh nervously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've had friends checking in and I'm like, this is so good for me. Like, <laughs> I, I swear, I, I think deep down, I think he likes me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, he probably still likes you more than Eric. Well, I think everybody likes me more than they like Eric. But it's not really saying much. And certainly Donnie. I think it's, to me, it's it's a sign of how much they are freaking out. Because it's not just that it's neutral. Like, it's not that it doesn't lay a glove on me. It's that I think it's actively bad for him. Right. And, and also, like, why now? Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah, why now? I, I think he needs to change the subject. Right. And it's not going to work, but it always has. And this is the problem with him. He's always gone away with it. Why wouldn't he get away with it again? He's always been able to pivot away from what's really going on. Why couldn't he do that now? I just think right now there are so many bad things happening for him right. that it's going to take a lot more than a frivolous lawsuit to take people's eyes off the ball. Yeah. That's really true. Thank you so much, Mary Trump. Please come back. I absolutely will. Thanks for having me on again. And um, I'm looking forward to my $100 million worth of free. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big basket. Hey, folks. If you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. 
You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there's something I've really been needing to get off of my chest lately, which is that everyone and their mother should listen to the Andre 3000 album because it lifts my spirits on a regular basis, 1000%. We all carry around different problems, big and small. And let's be honest, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. That's where therapy comes in. It's like this safe space where you can unload all those burdens and start figuring out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy can make a difference. I know this from firsthand experience, and it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants to improve their mental well-being. Therapy can help you learn coping skills. It can teach you how to set better boundaries, and it can make you be a better version of yourself. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, which means it's convenient, flexible, and fits into your schedule seamlessly. Plus, getting started is as easy as filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. So why wait? Take that first step towards a happier, healthier you with BetterHelp. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash the new abnormal today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash the new abnormal brian boitler is the editor-in-chief of crooked media welcome to the new abnormal brian thanks for having me back we're very excited to have you what the fuck (laughs) it's a good question it strikes me that democrats have a tiny window and they're wasting it on fucking joe manchin am i wrong i guess the question is on which super important thing that they're supposed to be doing And I guess like in any case, the answer is probably yes. But it's hard without some sort of forcing mechanism to make everyone in the Senate vote the same way. And I think that what we're seeing is that it's the imposition of some sort of if you don't get on board and do this, X crisis is going to ensue that can actually get, you know, even the most recalcitrant members to start acting like they're part of the party. Yeah. I mean, yesterday, Biden brought basically everyone in and was like, give me a top line number. According to 
a very conservative newsletter that I read this morning. So who knows? But is that what you think happened? And do you think it worked? I think that the basic pitch, whether whether there was a demand, I think that there was almost certainly a demand for specificity because the problem that Mansion and to some extent Kirsten Cinema are creating is that they aren't saying what it will take to get them to support the Build Back Better Act. And until Democrats can get 50 senators and 218 House members to agree on the specifics of that bill, the whole Biden agenda is dead. And that's a catastrophe for the whole party, but particularly for um, the frontline members that are supposedly like foremost of concern for the Democratic leadership. And obviously Biden wants his agenda to pass and not completely fall apart. Once there's some specificity out there, once he, once he says, this is what it'll take to get me on board, and there's a commitment that, yes, I will vote for this once we get it closer to what I want, then the negotiations are out of this dead end or this morass where it's just a dialogue of mistrust between the people actively trying to make sure the whole agenda passes and the ones who are threatening to tank it all unless the stuff they don't want to vote for gets thrown out. This stalemate can't last very long because we have a debt ceiling that needs to, I mean, we're like about to crash into government funding and the debt ceiling in December. So it's interesting. It's like, with the rules as they as they stand, yes, the you know the deadline imposed by the existence of the debt ceiling is mid October ish. But you see, if the party could just get it together and say, "Hey, we're not going to honor these nihilistic threats that Mitch McConnell's making. We're going to abolish the filibuster and raise the debt limit unilaterally, or just abolish the debt limit altogether," so that you know. Republicans can't mug any future Democratic presidents either. Not only does that solve the debt limit problem, but it just solves basically every problem, right? It gives Democrats infinite running room if they need to take more time with their legislative agenda, right? Like if it created a problem for them that the the parliamentarian threw out the immigration reform piece, that problem goes away, that you know? fucking uh, parliamentarian. Continue. <laughs> I mean, I just think, I think what you're saying is right. And I think that, you know, I'm not sure if you saw, there's a video that Democrats released yesterday, which had Mitch McConnell saying, like, fuck the debt ceiling. And then six months later being like, we are absolutely not going to touch the debt ceiling. You know, I mean, obviously the guy's a hypocrite. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a few ways that debt limit standoff can end, right? One is if Republicans are bluffing and they just 10 votes to, to, uh, increase the debt limit materialize, which seems like, you know, possible, but you don't really want to risk it. The the other ways are basically Democrats can either cave to Republicans or act on their own. And what are Republicans demanding? They're basically demanding that Democrats abandon Build Back Better, right? Like Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, Donald Trump, what they're all saying is Build Back Better is so terrible that Republicans shouldn't vote to raise the debt limit, with with the implication being that if Democrats just abandon the stuff they want to do with their elected power, then Republicans won't destroy the country. These are all things that were created by Republicans that they use when Democrats are in power, but abandon when right. Democrats are and not. After 2011 and, and Republican success extorted a bunch of concessions from Obama to raise the debt limit, Democrats stopped giving them anything meaningful and it stopped being a, a, a weapon that worked. And so I, I don't think that, that you're going to see Democrats say, OK, fine, we're going to give up Biden's whole agenda and 
in exchange for that, you'll help us raise the debt limit. So then the question is, how do Democrats do it on their own? And I think that obviously, the, like the most sensible thing would be for them to just abolish the filibuster and raise it, and, you know, fuck around and find out basically should be the message right. to Republicans. The other alternative is to try to modify the budget resolution with new voteramas and take, you know, many weeks to engineer a way to do it through the reconciliation process. At the end of the day, the important thing is that it get raised without Republicans getting any substantive concessions for it. But I don't know why the party feels like it should have to do all these acrobatics just because Republicans said they have to do it. Like if if Republicans are saying you have to raise the debt limit on your own, we're not going to help. Then Democrats response should be to do it the simplest way, which is just say, fine, there's no more filibuster. And the the debt limit is increased. And also we're going to pass voting rights and we're going to protect abortion rights. And, you know, you put us in a corner and you found out. Since you are on a podcast and not cable news, we can say you fucked around and you found out. I wanted to talk to you about this polling that shows the uh, Trumpy Supreme Court That's, is not. Very I guess popular. sort of the inevitable consequence of the court just kind of realizing that it has this unaccountable power and starting to do things that are profoundly unpopular. I mean, when it was the Roberts court, I in a way it's still the Roberts court, but he had, it was Roberts plus four. Thanks. You know, they did a bunch of terrible things. They did a lot of damage to the Affordable Care Act, but the headline out of that was that the law survived. And so, you know, right. to the extent that the public cares about what the Supreme Court does, it's not really particularly in the weeds of it. They just knew, knew that Obama won the case, right? And right. the healthcare law survived. Liberals suddenly were thought very highly of the Supreme Court. It was, they trusted the Supreme Court. Then a bunch of terrible things happen on sort of sub Rosa issues like, um, like campaign finance and the technical specifics of labor organizing issues where it just, these are just not high wattage. And when, and when liberals lose, they don't generate tons of outrage. People don't pour out in the streets. And so they accrue a lot of damage, but then they enshrine a a right to same-sex marriage in Obergefell. And so progressive support for the court goes back through the roof. And conservatives are disappointed because, you know, their loyal justices aren't abolishing Obamacare. And that's sort of the the way public opinion about the court had gone for about a decade until we got Amy Coney Barrett replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And now John Roberts is sort of not necessary for justices like Alito to wipe out abortion in Texas. And so Roberts is like very crafty efforts to keep the court popular, despite doing a bunch of terrible things <laughs> under the radar has fallen apart because, right. because Alito et al are going to make much rasher, more unpopular decisions. And that's that's a good thing in that it's a predicate for ultimately undoing the damage that the court does one way or another. For that to happen, you need the court's bad pulling to stick and you need sort of like a, a snowballing of terrible decisions. And then you need public pressure on lawmakers to do something about it. So we're basically at step one. It's interesting to me, though, when you see this polling, you see why Amy Coney Barrett and Thomas were out there last month being like, we're not partisan. We just are ideologically completely insane. I go back and forth on this, but I really ultimately think that they're trolling. I mean, I don't think that they are deluded into thinking that actually their opinions and their lawmaking is just, you know, stems from some above board judicial philosophy that isn't partisan at all. They know that 
what their agenda is and that they're imposing it and that there's nothing anyone's going to do about it. And right. And so, and so their impulse is to think we're going to get a lot of blowback and criticism for making these highly partisan decisions. Well, what's the way to deal with that is to sort of preemptively discredit our critics by saying that they're, you know, shrill partisans and actually the court isn't partisan and, and set a standard whereby they can convince figures in the media, members of the Republican Party, to just ignore the criticism when it comes, because they've already said, hey, we're not, this isn't partisan. And it's, in a way, it, it like throws it back into the faces of the people who are harmed by their decisions or like realize that their decisions are partisan. It's like, it's a troll. It, it's like almost very Trumpy in, in the way it's like glibly gaslighting the people who have their number. What is your message to... Democrats who are in power right now, even if they don't believe it. I mean, it strikes me that what you're you're thinking is stop playing nice, start playing like democracy is at stake because it is. I guess I want to add a like a, a tiny bit of complexity to it beyond doing the things you promised to do and doing the things that the country needs and doing the things required to make sure that the next election and the election after that are fair. Your internal fighting that's making doing those things impossible isn't just bad because the good things that you should be doing aren't getting done. It's because it's also making you look like fools. It's making you look hapless and like you're just completely in over your heads and that all the organizing that went into getting you in power to do those things was wasted because you're too incompetent to do it. And that, I think, in a, in a way, is more deadly than if they just said, psych, we don't want to do this stuff, so we're not going to. The damage they're doing to themselves is unfolding on multiple levels because as a result of that, because in addition to leaving themselves vulnerable to voter suppression and election subversion and to backlash from voters harmed by Supreme Court decisions and by you know voters who are promised cheaper prescription drugs, they're telling any remaining unaffected voters, like, we can't actually get our shit together to govern in any way. And so they should just act with some degree of resolve. Right. And the act of acting, you know, like the, yeah. the fact of acting will solve a lot of the, of the political problems that they've run into over the last few months. You see this happen sort of over and over that like dithering about things creates an environment where conditions deteriorate, but actually acting gets your base at least back on your side. Like if Joe Biden should have wanted to impose vaccination requirements much earlier, right. because in, a, in, a, in addition to getting more people vaccinated and, and, and making the Delta outbreak worse, it's he would have at least showed that he was doing something right. Like yes. he was in charge of the situation. Keeping that in mind, I think, would just make the, the like the party standing healthier going forward. Thank you so much, Brian. Please come back soon. Of course. Anytime. George Lakoff is a linguist as well as the author of Don't Think of an Elephant. Welcome to the new abnormal, George. Glad to be here. So, George, I remember when I was a younger boy uh, who was aspiring to work on political campaigns, I was told by everyone around me I had to read your books before I did anything. And so you long told Democrats how to message against Republicans. It seems like they've gotten in a very bad place lately, worse than usual. Can you talk to us about what you're seeing these days with that? Well, 
they've always been at a bad price, and it was always difficult to uh, get them out of it. They seem to believe in the rational actor model. That is, if they just say something that is logical and follows from the truth, that ought to work. Uh, rather than understanding how framing works, how they have to frame the issues, that's a totally different kind of thing. They're not used to that, and they're not used to metaphorical thought. So they're, you know, they use it, but they don't know when they're using it or how they're using it. So the two major problems with the rational actor model is that uh, it doesn't take into account framing, and it doesn't take into account metaphorical thought. Uh, which are used all the time by everybody. So they have a false theory of reason and communication. So you would say that that's why Democrats are so bad at messaging? Yes. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, this is something Descartes had this idea that if you just act rationally and via logic, that's all you needed. And it turns out that it isn't all you needed. People think in terms of framing. This was established by my late colleague, Charles Fillmore, uh, many years ago. And um, the, uh, they've never learned exactly how that works. The idea of framing, I wrote a book on it, and, and the idea got into the news now and then. So you'll hear uh, somebody say this was framed as such and such. But it's not used uh, actively and in a way that's understood. And it's not used politically in a way that is advantageous. So that is one problem with the use of framing. And uh, they don't know when they're using metaphorical thought and when they're not, because metaphorical thought is unconscious and normal. You normally, if you say prices rose, that's a metaphor. They're not literally going up. (laughs) And there are metaphors all over the place that they're using, and they don't know that they're using them or what the consequences are of using them. So basically, you know, people in politics don't generally study linguistics. Right. (laughs) Not surprisingly. And so they don't know any of this stuff, but they use language all the time and sometimes uh, misuse it in in a way that goes against what they're trying to do. If you could think of a very simple way for Democrats to improve their messaging. I have a book. It's called Don't Think of an Elephant. Know your values and frame the debate. They could read the book. It's cheap. They could buy a copy and read it in an evening. (laughs) Give me a sort of quick elevator pitch on this. Well, look, uh, if you're going to uh, frame an issue, for example, what is the debt ceiling important and why? Okay, that's an issue. And you have to know what the debt ceiling is. And then there are arguments on what the debt ceiling is from uh, a Democratic or or, a Republican point of view. And you can figure out what those arguments are going to be. So the debt ceiling is uh, and introduces a frame. If you understand what the debt ceiling is, you understand that frame. And then you can argue within the frame. So that's a simple minded case that's coming up now. But the the cases are everywhere every day. I mean, you know, uh, anything you're talking about is framed. So, George, one of the biggest problems is the Republicans are acting in super bad faith. Is there any way you would point that out? Republicans are not neutral. They have a view of the world that I've called strict father morality, which is a longer story. But they want to um, control things for wealthy people and wealthy corporations. That's the uh, five-second version of it. Democrats tend to want to get things for ordinary people. That's the three-second version of that. 
Okay, uh, those things are going to be in conflict, and the conflict is worked out every day. That took 10 seconds. While that takes 10 seconds, I think the problem is, is that people don't believe it. And are we at an era of messaging now where you have to go beyond, you know, just saying and there has to be action like i think that's one of the big things we're seeing with this legislation gridlock is that we're saying if the democrats don't actually put up people don't believe your messaging anymore just saying it doesn't do it because it doesn't put uh, the frame in people's minds so there's a there's a factual thing that you can state but having that factual thing put into a frame that people use to think in terms of all the time is a totally different matter. So if you understand what a Republican is and how to, to project from that uh, in new, new situations, what that means is you have a frame for a Republican. And that frame will fit whatever new situations there are, and you're going to get new inferences in new situations. That's what framing is about. That's what understanding something via a frame is about. It allows you to, you know, introduce the frame in new situations to get new inferences. Yeah, that's necessary. And if you understand politics, you and then you are framing Republicans and Democrats and you're getting in new inferences in new situations. That's what's going on unconsciously in your mind. It strikes me that one of the things that people used to say about Trump who still exists and is waiting in the wings trying to get back into power, is that uh, he is very good at messaging. Can you explain that? He's very good at framing, at framing things his way. Can you show us an example of that? Take a a standard thing that Trump's people would understand. Namely, uh, politics is a matter of gaining power and exercising that power for what you believe, right? As opposed to... Politics is a way of gaining power to exercise it for the sake of, uh, you know, most ordinary people. Totally different views about what politics is about. And that is very much like a Trumpian Republican frame and, a, you know, a Democratic frame. Thank you so much, George. Please come back soon. That's for sure easy. Thanks. Anytime. What's crazier than QAnon? More outlandish than Pizzagate? And scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from the Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subasang and Will Summer check in on the movement of the radical right. Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Jesse Cannon. Hello, Molly Jungfast. Isn't it just a a lovely day for fuckery? The humidity is like 10,000 here in New York City. 10,000. 10,000. Let's talk about the dumbest, dumbest, dumbest member of Congress. I mean, I hate to say that because it's like it leaves out Louis Gohmert, but she's really making her name for herself, Representative Bopart. Bobert. Lauren Bopert. <laughs> yes. Bopert. She even sounds like a Muppet. I, you know, I'd say she's giving a college try, but that brain clearly has not done some college thinking. Hey, man, I didn't go to college, so let's not... Uh, you, let's you, not whoa, 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 whoa. you went to college. You didn't complete college. I did like one credit. Give me an honorary bachelor's. I'm here, man.
take it. I don't think that's a thing people do. But if there's any chance that I can get an honorary bachelor's. So anyway, Lauren Boebert, well, first of all, she's got two really big problems here. One is that she uh, paid for her rent and utilities out of campaign money. Which, if I recall correctly, felony charge. That could be really fun. I mean, I don't doubt that she didn't know she wasn't supposed to do that because she is quite dumb, but she also should have known. Mm-hmm. They usually tell you to get a lawyer when you start doing a campaign, as I recall. The next thing that she did, which I also think is pretty amazing, it's not, it's a sort of different level of stupid, is she was speaking on the floor yesterday. This was the same time that MTG, Marjorie Taylor Greene, had up a meme that showed the Green New Deal actually benefited China. You'll know, you, I don't know if you know this, but China's like one of the biggest polluters in the world. And if there ever were someone who was not happy with the Green New Deal, it would be China. But sure, okay, it's not, you know, it's a meme, so it's obviously got to be a law. Here we have Lauren Boper. She basically says that rape victims need to have, should have a gun. And love. And love instead of being able to have an abortion. Yeah. Yeah. Not having, if you had a Glock, you wouldn't get raped. So she's basically saying that it's a rape victim's fault for being raped and if they had a gun. Now, of course, you and I both know that many more people have guns tend to use them accidentally on themselves or their children. I mean, there's a lot of accidental gun violence that happens in houses with guns. But Lauren Boper, crazy Lauren Boper, still believes that uh, guns prevent rape. That's what happens when you're a gun fetishist and everything's a nail when all you have is a hammer. That's right. Jesse, who is your fuck that guy? My fuck that guy is someone we haven't brought up in a while, but is definitely a regular of fuck that guy. We often wonder with some of these Trumpy people, is their brains rotten? Are they grifters? Are they acting in bad faith? One Michael Flynn is proving that just why he's been thrown out of the government and why he's gotten in so much trouble over time. Because yesterday he took to some, let's call it Z-grade conservative talk show. I mean, I'm looking at the image of this uh, split on the screen and I'm like, what in the hell? Who would approve this aesthetic? But he said that they're going to start putting the vaccine in salad dressing. Oh, yes, Michael Flynn. By the way, if only we could get the fucking vaccine and salad dressing. See, this is the this is the other flawed thinking, Molly. I don't think a lot of the people who are avoiding the vaccine eat a lot of salad. I don't know. You know, the whole thing, we've hit such a preposterous moment in American life. You know, I guess Michael Flynn, his brain is as broken as Devin Nunes. <laughs> yes. This whole segment's giving uh, a lot of competition of whose brain is (laughs) most broken. broken. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think vaccine salad dressing is something you need to worry about. I don't think anybody would want to do a full analysis of what is happening in that brain. It's interesting because we've had people on here who've said like one day Michael Flynn went from normal to batshit. Well, you know, I think uh, when you read the Gateway Pundit day after day after day, reality just slips away from you slowly. Something in the water. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. 
Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.